You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. So Judges chapter 8. If you're there, say, got it. Fantastic. That's enough of y'all. So we've seen a couple of things the last few weeks. Today we're going to be wrapping up the life of Gideon. And so we've been looking at different judges that God has installed for the people of Israel. And so Gideon, he hits the scene in Judges chapter 6. And there he fights uh, his enemy. The conflict is with Baal. And we say it here in Georgia in the south, we say Baal. Okay, so he, the conflict is with Baal, one of these false gods. And then in chapter 7, we saw last week that Gideon's conflict is with the Midianites, one of the area tribes that's trying to attack and take over Gideon, and, or the Israelites. And Gideon is successful in, in pushing off both Baal and the Midianites. But here's the problem. We get to, Genesis, or we get to Judges chapter 8, and we see today that Gideon's conflict is not with an outside force, but it's with an inside force. And Gideon's conflict is actually with the Israelites. And there's a few reasons for that. Primarily, I'll I'll put the the onus of responsibility on him. But have you ever taken a... I remember one time I came back, we came back from vacation. I'm not the brightest, you know, bulb in the box. Um, And if you hang out with me for like five minutes, you're like, that is true. Um, But I'll buy you lunch. So, uh, So we came back from vacation one time, and I don't know where we were, and I was... I don't know, I was hopefully uh, in my like single digit years, but there's a good chance I was in my 20s. But we came back from vacation and I went to the fridge and I was thirsty and I grabbed the gallon of milk and I was like, I'm just gonna drink right out of the jug because I'm a man. And so I grabbed that gallon of milk. We've been gone for about a week, okay, not a couple of days. I grabbed it, took a big old swig and spit it right back out all over the kitchen floor. Linoleum, you know, real nice. Um, so I spit it back out because that milk over the course of a week, which was probably sitting in my fridge for a week before that, which was probably sitting in the grocery store for a couple of weeks before that, which was probably sitting somewhere else being frozen for like, but over that time it had spoiled. You, you ever had, you ever had a, or even like a sniff of spoiled milk. You ever do that? Every time now, n- no lie. If I go and get a glass of milk, I got one last night and dipped Oreos in it for about an hour. Um, you're like, how do you keep your girlish figures? Because I wear oversized shirts. Uh, so I went in there. Before I poured that glass of milk, I took a big whiff. Does this smell terrible? No. Okay. So now I'll drink it. But we do that. But here's what happened with Gideon is over time, Gideon begins to sour. And we see this kind of all throughout chapter 8. And so chapter 6, chapter 7, he's good. He's trusting in and relying on God. But we get to chapter 8, and Gideon begins to sour, which is interesting because this is actually the first time that we see this in the book of Judges, where Israel, while they're under the leadership of one of God's appointed judges, begins to turn their back on God during the leadership. So what has happened thus far, and we talked about this in the first couple of chapters, we see this downward spiral. So when the spiral begins, they were worshiping God under the judge, and then there was peace in the land, and then they would go and turn their back on God. What we see here, as it's going downward, while Gideon is still judging Israel, they begin to turn their back on God. And that's because of Gideon's poor leadership. So Judges chapter 8, you're already there. I'll begin in verse number one. And the first few verses say this. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. 
And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zaab. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided, subsided when he said this. So here's what we see, okay? So a couple of things. Here's, here's why this is important. And it seems like, okay, so we have um, Ephraim, who was the strongest tribe. They were the wealthiest tribe of Israel. They were sort of the prima donna. Everything went through them. They were just, they were the biggest, the, the best, the brightest. And so at the end of chapter 7, uh, Gideon is pursuing the Midianites. And when he's just about got them, like the, the battle is mostly over, then Gideon calls Ephraim. And the reason for that is because Gideon wanted the victory to himself. But he's like, ah, we, we haven't quite got them. Let me call Ephraim. And so Ephraim is mad about that. So their leaders go to, go to Gideon and say, man, why did you not call on us? Uh, here's the other thing. Gideon is from the tribe of Manasseh, which is the weakest tribe. And so there's already kind of this tension between Ephraim and Manasseh. The Ephraimites already did not really like Gideon that much, but they're like, why did you not call us? We're stronger. We're better. Uh, why did you? And Gideon's like, you know, I, I, I'm sorry. But he, notice his response. In verses three and four there, he says, what, look, look at all these battles, all these victories that you've won. You are amazing, Ephraim. Please don't be mad at me. I'm sorry. So he says, uh, let me try to smooth this over with some, with some nice words, some niceties. He begins smooth talking Ephraim. But notice back in chapter seven, they're mad because he didn't call them. They were mad at Gideon because they wanted the victory for themselves, but Gideon wanted the victory for him. But Gideon knows, man, I'm from a weak tribe. I can't just say, man, forget y'all. I don't need you. At that point, Ephraim would be off the map. He, he wants to use them, so he smooth talks them. We see this diplomatic response. Now, some folks would be like, oh, well, that's nice. Good thing he tried to smooth this over. We're about to see, though, his diplomatic response was not out of humility. He was not seeking to pursue peace. Verse number four, and Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursued. I remember back in chapter seven, we saw that Gideon took these, what was tens of thousands of men, whittled them down to 300 men. He pursues the Midianites. So he's, he's still pursuing them. So he said to the men of Succoth, which is a city there, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth has answered him. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So a couple of things. So Ephraim is strong, powerful, wealthy. They were mad that Gideon had not called him, them earlier. Succoth and Penuel are small little cities. They're mad that Gideon had called on them at all. So what does he say to them? He says, hey, can you please give us some bread? They refuse. He says, you know what? I'm going to finish chasing down the Midianites, these two kings, and then I'm going to come back here and beat you. I'm going to take these briars and just wail on you. Now, his attitude with Ephraim, he was upset with them, but he was like, I've got to woo them so they're not mad at me. 
He goes to his, these lesser towns and says, man, y'all aren't respecting me. I'm going to come back and beat you down and tear down your tower, which is right there in the middle of the town. His attitude towards both of these is contempt. He knows he has to play nice with the stronger one. He can beat up on the, the lesser ones, but his attitude is, I'm the man. I'm Gideon. I'm chasing down these kings. I've taken care of Midian. Come and, come and pay me honor. Pay me homage. And when they don't, he's like, man, this, uh, we're, we're going to take care of business. So we get through verse number nine there. We see here that Gideon is beginning to spoil. Verse number 10. And Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbehat and attacked the army, for the army fell secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. So he finally catches up with the kings. Verse 12, verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harris, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So he, he, he chases down the kings. He finds this guy from Succoth. He says, tell me who's in charge of your town. He writes down 77 men. He goes back into Succoth and says, all right, you taunted me a few minutes ago. You, you were like, have you called him yet? You haven't even called him yet? Why do you deserve bread? So they taunted Gideon, and Gideon says in verse 17, now I'm going to teach you a lesson. Notice the heart of Gideon here. These, these, are, these are his, like he wasn't even chasing them. He asked for their help. They refused, and so he said, all right, now the wrath that you were trying to avoid, the wrath of the Midianites has subsided, but you get the wrath of Gideon. Kind of ironic, right? This man appointed by God wants to dish out the wrath of God on people that he was not commanded to. Now notice, Gideon is supposed to be chasing down the Midianites, but here he exercises his wrath against Succoth and Penuel. Look down at verse 18. This is where it gets personal for him. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They said, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. So that's Gideon speaking. They were my brothers. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he would offer mercy to his enemies, to the Midianites, even though he just slaughtered the men of Succoth and Penuel. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man, probably in single digits, maybe 10, 11 years old. So Gideon says, I'm going to make this... Uh, part of my family honor system, and my kid is going to kill you two kings of Midian. But the kid, he was too scared to do it. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself, Gideon, and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. So he goes and he kills these two kings after trying to get his kid to do it. But this has become a family thing. He, it's not the 
the wrath of God on the Midianites. He says, I want to chase you down because you killed my brothers. That's the reason for now chasing down the Midianites. So, he's, so God has said, I want you to remove these pagans from the land. And really that means to push them out. They tried to push them out, then they had to chase them down and kill them. So they, they chase them down, and then Gideon says, not out of obedience to God, but because of my own anger, am I going to kill you? We pick up in verse number 22. I know we're going quickly through this, just trying to read every single verse in, in this chapter. Here's where things get even worse. So we see Gideon spoiling. Verse 22, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Verse 23 is important. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's about 40 pounds of pure gold. Besides the crescent ornaments that he got back in verse number, uh, back in verse 21, and the pennants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the colors that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Oprah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. So we see everything just kind of hit the fan right here, which next week is chapter nine. And the fan's like spinning at this point, you know, throwing everything everywhere. But we see right here, everything just kind of breaks down. At this point, this is when we take the big swig of milk and it's, it's completely soured. At the beginning, notice in verse 22, Israel says, we want you to be our king. At this point, Gideon has made it all about himself. Gideon forgot the hand of God. And now the people have forgotten the hand of God. But then in verse number 23, we have a little bit of a reprieve. And this is actually the last time at any point in the story where Gideon remembers God at all. He says, well, wait, you don't need a king. You just need to obey the king that you have. In verse 23, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over, the, over you. The Lord will rule over you. But notice in verse 24, there's an immediate contrast with that. So while verse 23, it looks promising, he's like, no, 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 we, we got God in charge. I know I've kind of made this about me, but wait, God's in charge. But I'll tell you what, y'all go get all your gold and let's spread a cloak and I'm gonna make an ephod. So just like that, there's this immediate contrast. Now here's why the ephod is important. Look down at verse number 27. And Gideon made an ephod of all that gold, which that's a pretty, that's a pretty heavy thing. 40 pounds of gold, he made this. Here's, here's what an ephod is. The, the priest would wear um, this, it was, a, it was like a vest. And the priest would wear it. On, it would, when God wanted Israel to do something, it had these two coins that would turn over which way. And it was God's way of communicating with his people. So the high priest would wear this as a reminder that God was speaking to his people through the priest, but it was through this ephod. That's how God was speaking to his people. Now notice Gideon makes an ephod and where does he put it? In his city. And what did the people do? They came and worshiped him. They whored after that ephod that Gideon had made. So instead of Gideon saying, hey, this victory is for the Lord, seek his guidance. 
Gideon says, no, come and ask me for guidance. Instead of saying, go and worship the Lord in his tabernacle, he says, come to my hometown and worship this ephod that I have made. Instead of Gideon using this position of power to point to God, he points it to himself. Instead of Gideon being a judge that turned the people from false worship, Gideon led the people of Israel into false worship. Gideon has essentially become a stumbling block of faith for the people of God. He's completely soured. He is completely spoiled. But what about verse 28? It says there was rest for 40, for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Isn't that good news? All that means is that those 40 years of rest, there was no outside influence because God didn't need to send judgment to the people. The people were judging themselves because of their sinfulness. And so while we see, okay, there's rest, this was compromised rest because there was no worship of the one true God and there was no obedience to him. So when we read verse number 28, understand this is not really good rest. It's just no war. Verse 29, we'll finish the chapter here. Zerubbabel, the son of Joash, which is another name for Gideon, and we saw this back in chapter 7, it basically means the, the one who struggled with Baal. And so even his name that the people of Israel gave him uh, is like, hey man, this guy, this guy saved us from the false gods. Zerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Oprah of the Abizrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bereft their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So we see in the previous verses, we see that Gideon says, I want to be your king. You asked for a king, now oh, we got God, but you know what, I'll do it anyway. Since you asked real nice, I'll be your king. Here we see, this is the life of a king. The life of a king is having a bunch of wives and concubines. The, the life of a king is having a bunch of kids. The life of a king is living in his own house and people coming to see him. The life of a king is saying, I am the one who you can come and get your direction from. The life of a king is people saying, man, we love you. We worship you. This is the life that Gideon has set up for himself. He's replaced God in this picture. He knew, he knew about God. You can go back and read verse, chapter 6 and 7. He knew God intellectually, but the truth of God had not gripped his heart. The truth of God had not changed the way that Gideon lived. We, we see this growing gap between Gideon's head, what he knows about God, and his hands, the way that he responds to God. And we see in verses 33 through 35, we see that even after he died, the people again turned and whore after the balls and made uh, one of them their God. That's where Gideon led them, was to whoring after these gods. So ruin did not come from without, from the Midianites. It came from within. But I would encourage you, real quick side note, uh, two things. One, we see here that the people of Israel did not respect Gideon. And, and I, would, I would say this, D don't, um, I, I'll put it this way, be careful 
that you respond to God-given leadership in a submissive, honorable way. Because that was given by God. Okay? And you're like, well, that's easy for you to say. You don't want to stand up front with lights on you. <laughs> it's like, true, but I'm just saying what the Bible says. They did not respect Gideon or his family. And we can go look at 1 Timothy. We can look at Titus. We can look at the way that the church is set up. But I would say, honor the God-given authorities in your life. We met yesterday as pastors. And you know what we did most of the time? We talked about addressing sin in the body. We didn't primarily... Hey, we didn't, we didn't talk about any of the things on the to-do list that I put together. <laughs> so if you know me, I'm just a to-do list person. I'm like, let's, let's get things done. Let, let's make sure we can check those things off and somebody's responsible. And next week, we'll look at the to-do list. We didn't even have a to-do list from last month or from December because we care so much about the souls of our church body and the souls that are around us that we don't want sin to be a hindrance to the mission of God. And so we sat and we talked and we cried and we prayed for the souls of these people. That is our burden. Don't make the burden any heavier than it has to be. There are a lot of folks also on the flip side. Some of you are like, I really want to be in leadership. And I would encourage you, don't jump into that too quickly for the sake of your own honor. We see here Gideon, he wanted to be in leadership for the sake of his own honor and glory. God said, I want you to be in leadership for this reason. He said, yeah, but this reason looks so much better. Spurgeon, back in the uh, late 19th century, he said, he was, he was speaking to seminary students. He said, don't go into ministry to save your own soul. And I think that's what a lot of church leaders do to save their own soul because they don't know anything else. Friends, you can read Ephesians chapter 4. We are all ministers. We all have ministry. I was talking to a brother a couple weeks ago, and he talked about how his business partner was like, man, I, I got to take some time off because I've got to go do the Lord's work somewhere else on a mission trip. And this guy who's in our church, he said, he said wait, what we do every day is the Lord's work. And, and this guy, if you, if you were like, hey, what do you do? He, he, <laughs> you'd be like, oh, that's the Lord's work. Yes, there, there's no sacred, secular divide. We've all been sitting into our places of work. This right here for this hour, hour and 15 minutes, this what I do standing up on a stage just while you're in a life group, just while you're in a DNA group, just serving in the nursery, just serving on a surf team, that's not the only time that we're doing ministry. We are ministers when we are with our families and our homes. You are ministers when you go to work. That's what God has called you to. And what you're doing is a sacred work. It is a holy work because he has commissioned you to that. And while you are there, you are pushing against the darkness. You are there with the kingdom of light saying, we want good things to happen in our culture and in the world because we want people to know about a good king. So while you are at work, you are ministers. When you are at home, you are a minister. When you lay down in bed, be reminded, you are a minister. And when you look at Ephesians 4, by the way, you're like, I'm, I'm going to go fact check that. That's fine. He gives apostles, prophets, elders, shepherds, and teachers. Sorry, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. He gives them to train the ministers in the church because the saints are doing the work of the ministry, not the leaders. But I would encourage you, if you're like, man, I think I'm called into church leadership, be very, very careful. James 3 says there is a higher calling put on a preacher, a pastor of the gospel. 
He is going to give account for the souls of his local church body. And so I would, I would plead with you to pray for your pastors. It's so encouraging. I got a few more text messages at the beginning of the year when we were all setting trends, right? And I would get these text messages a couple nights a week, like, hey, just want to let you know that we're praying for you. We're, we're taking a pastor tonight and praying for you. That is so encouraging. Now, I, I, I told my wife yesterday, and I told Mike, um, I, I, didn't want to, I did not want to preach today. And the reason is because I am Gideon. When I look at Gideon's life, I think, man, this is me. I, I love sitting in front of the light and people looking at me. I love people afterwards. Man, that was, that was good. I love people sharing it on Facebook. I love people saying, man, what you had to say here was just power. Like, I love that. But I have to be reminded this is what God has called us to, is for his glory alone. It's so that he can be victorious. Not so that Michael Powell can be victorious. Not so that when we all get to heaven, we can look back and say South Point was victorious. I don't know how I got off in that direction. What they knew of Yahweh exercised no control over these people. They knew him intellectually, but they did not know him intimately, experientially. Gideon spoiled, Israel spoiled, his children spoiled, and everything was sent into ruin. Don't let that be you. Here are a few things that I want us to see from this passage. These will be up on the screen if you want to write them down. The first one is this, that our greatest risk is strength, not weakness. The greatest threat on your family's life, on your life, is not strength, but it's weakness. We, prosperity is the true test of our faith. We see here that Gideon responds to prosperity with selfishness. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, it says this. This will be on the screen. Proverbs 30. It says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It, it reminds me of what we call the Lord's Prayer, probably the disciples' prayer. They said, teach us how to pray. So the disciples are praying this. He, they, he, God, Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, is there anything wrong with saving money? No, I love saving money. I was talking to some guys earlier about putting money in, in, uh, in cryptocurrencies, in the stock market, in, in different stocks. Like, I think making money, saving money, all those things are good. Nothing wrong with that. But we must not lose our daily dependence on the Lord. Prosperity is the true test of our faith. And we as Americans should know that better than everyone else. And you can look around in America right now. Consider the, the, the Texas freeze from the past few days. And whatever you think about climate change or Ted Cruz tweets from 2016, whatever, it's all entertaining to me. But here's what we know. We know that we are not in control. When even Texas is being frozen over like a tundra, the weather is a fantastic reminder that we are not in control. So while we may feel like we're in control, we're not. 
Some of you would consider yourselves really hard workers. And I consider myself a hard worker. You're like, bro, you only work on Sundays. That's fine. I work really hard on Sundays, okay? I mean, it's only for 45 minutes, but man, it's a, it's a killer. Uh, the, and we would think, okay, we want to work hard for the sake of success. If that's your goal, that's your motivation in life, the worst thing that can happen to you is career failure. Some of, some of y'all, some of us, our greatest fear is career failure. But here's the, here's the good side about career failure. Career f- failure can actually lead you to fall more humbly on the grace of God. Because it's at that moment of weakness that you realize you need him. So I would posit to you that the greatest fear that you should have is career success. Your, your danger is not weakness. Your danger is strength. Because in the midst of career success, you don't need anyone or anything else. You have money. You have power. You have prestige. You have pride. You have the ability to take advantage of others. So the greatest danger to you is not weakness, but it's strength. It's not failure, but it's success. If you look back at chapter 7 and verse number 15, we actually see that this is the last time that Gideon worships. It says in verse number 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of this dream while he's sitting there waiting on victory that God is going to provide, it says that he heard the dream and its interpretation. He worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Right here, by the end of chapter 8, Gideon has forgotten God. He's forgotten the character and the nature and the work of God. He's forgotten all of that. He's completely ruined. He's completely spoiled. He forgot the one who has called him, who has equipped him, who has encouraged him, who gave him dreams and visions through the enemies, who has given him victory in battle. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. You can turn there if you want to. It'll be up on the screen. But Ephesians chapter 2. This is a familiar passage. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We need to remember in our failure that, it, we, that we have been saved by the grace of God and God alone. But we much more need to remember that we have been saved by God's grace when we are successful. This sermon is not for the failures in the room. This sermon is for the successful. We look at Gideon. He wasn't a failure most of his life. He became a failure because of his success. In our hearts, what we see in Ephesians chapter 2, what we see with the Israelites saying, hey, please be our king. We see that our hearts are desperate to believe that we can save ourselves. We have a good and gracious king, but man, don't we need an earthly one? We, we have the direction of the Lord in this ephod, but what if we make one out of 40 pounds of gold? It is by grace that we have been saved through faith. Don't bemoan your weakness. Beware your strength. Do not bemoan your weakness, but beware your strength. It will woo you away from the power of the Lord. Tom Brady, after winning his third Super Bowl, a reporter asked him, okay, so, so how does it make you feel? What do you do from here? He said, here's what he said. He quoted this. He said, um, he said God, I wish there was more. I wish, that was after number three. 
The reporter said, um, the reporter said, what do you mean? He said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And he just won number six or seven with his second team. He's 43 years old. Some of us would think, well, now he's reached it. But I can guarantee you, well, I know this for a fact. <laughs> Guess what he's doing next year? Playing again, another season. Now he wants to play past the age of 45. Is that because the Super Bowls were satisfying to him? Because nobody's probably ever going to touch that record, including Patrick Mahomes? No, it's because they weren't satisfying. He hopes there's more. And next year there's going to be more, but then he's going to want more after that. Our greatest risk is strength, not weakness. Another thing we see here in the life of Gideon is that our struggle is not in knowing, but it's in doing. Our struggle is not in knowing, but our struggle is in doing. If you consider verses 23 and 27, verse 23, things look good. This is good theology. Verse 23 is... Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Dude had good theology. He was reading all the best books, all the best authors, all the ones that you, know, you completely agree with. He was reading all those, whoever they are. But then in verse 27, just a few minutes later, maybe even in the next breath, he says, but I want you to make this ephod for me. The, the bummer is not in bad theology. It's, he's got good theology. The bummer is in having a bad practice. This is what we call sanctification. Sanctification is becoming more and more like Christ. To be sanctified, to be holy, is the narrowing of the gap between what we know to be true and what we live out in our lives. Again, I would encourage you, believer, there are things that you know to be true that you are not acting on. Whether that's how you treat your wife, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, the things that you look at on your phone, the way that you treat your kids, the way that you pray or don't pray with them, the direction that you are leading your family, what you do with your time when you're at work. Stop making excuses. Good theology cannot overcome bad practice. I sat with a brother uh, this past week, I talked to him on the phone. And in his life, the past few weeks, the rug has been completely ripped out from under his feet. And he's, he was laying there just emotionally bleeding out. But here's what he said. He said, I've become, I've began, I've begun to experience Christ's presence like never before in my life. He said, I've been strong for years. And he went back and started telling me a story from 2016. And I could tell you a story before even that. And things, you look at him, you're like, man, this dude's strong. It's in the midst of his weakness where he said, now I can experience the presence of Christ. There are a lot of things that we know to be right that we do not act upon. A lot of us know, right, what's today, February 21st? Beginning of the year, what are you going to do? You're going to eat better. You know what you should eat. I know what I should eat. Guess what I ate for lunch yesterday? Fried chicken. I told you I pounded a pack of Oreos last night. Like, I know what I should eat. I know what I shouldn't eat. Guess what I should do? I should exercise. The last time I exercised was probably a year and a half ago. Like, I know in my mind what to do, but I don't do it. We know that we should be reading the word and spending time in prayer, but are we doing that? Our struggle is not in knowing, but our struggle is in doing. Here's the 
impetus of chapter 8 and the life of Gideon is this. We need a new king and we need a better judge. You see, we think that we need to be saved from the Midianites of money, of pornography, of uh, a bad marriage, of a better job. We think that we need to be saved from that in our lives. We think it's some sort of external power or some sort of external influence that we need to be saved from. But when we look at the life of Gideon, we see that we need to be saved from the curse that is inside of our hearts. The curse of sin that we cannot cure on our own. We need to be saved from that. Consider your prayer life. What are the things you pray for? If God today looked at the past, we'll use month because maybe the last week wasn't good. Okay, so we'll use the last month. If God answered all of your prayers, what would your life look like? Would you be successful? And you're hoping that that success would lead to virtue? Because I can go down the line and talk about successful people from Jeffrey Epstein to Ravi Zacharias. And we can see that success, even good spiritual biblical success, does not lead to virtue. Would your prayer be for a new government? Because we can go down the list and see that there have been really good governments in the past, but there is still sin within our hearts. Would your prayer be for your kids to be accepted into a college? Because I can look at some leaders who had some really good education, who knew a lot of really good things, and led a lot of nations right down the drain. These things are not going to save us. We need a Savior who is going to come in and vanquish the external power that is drawing us away and is going to save us from an internal curse. We need a Savior who is going to come down and identify with us, who is going to live with us and live for us, and who's going to call us and draw us to himself so that we can live with him forever. We need a Savior named Jesus Christ. These external things are not going to save us. We need a new king, a better judge. Unlike Gideon, Jesus was worthy of demanding kingship. Unlike Gideon, Jesus could put on that ephod because he was the presence of God here on earth. He tabernacled among us in John chapter one. Unlike Gideon, Jesus didn't respond to being offered to rule the world when it was not his appointed time. Unlike Gideon, he maintained that he came to serve, not to be served. Unlike Gideon, Jesus didn't take gold and treasures for himself and made for himself an ephod, a vest. But he took his blood and he poured it out so that we could be covered in his righteousness. Unlike Gideon, Jesus in his weakest moment showed that he was most powerful by coming back to life, by defeating sin, hell, our enemy, and rising again to reign victorious for all of eternity. That is our king, King Jesus, who is a better king and a better judge. He is the one that we worship. This past week, there was a man named Stephen Henderson, and he passed away due to COVID and complications with COVID. And he was, a, he was an elder at a church down in Jackson. And his uh, funeral is today at 2 o'clock. I know we talked about memorial services and end-of-life celebrations, but he actually died. And he is having a funeral for his physical body to be put in the ground because his life here on earth is over. But here's what's interesting. In, in a few months, somebody may mention Stephen Henderson, and we live right here, and he taught at Elka up in McDonough. 
and he lived uh, around here. If you go to his Facebook page, uh, his last post was uh, a funny meme that he posted on, on Christmas Day. And before that, he bought um, some sort of Dodge vehicle for him and his family. It was some used vehicle. He was nothing special. He had, he had a wife and a couple of kids. But you wouldn't look at him and be like, Stephen Henderson is the man. That dude's awesome. Stephen Henderson was weak. And in his weakness, he lived a life of virtue. So that when we remember Stephen Henderson, we'll remember him way differently than Gideon. Because Stephen Henderson, all the way until the end of his life, was humbly dependent upon God. That is a legacy worth leaving. Do not be scared of your weakness. Be terrified of your strength. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says this in verses 4 through 8. This will be up on the screen if you don't want to turn there. It says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that, here's the reason the knowledge of Christ is important, so that, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We look at the Israelites and we can look at the life of Gideon and God is merciful. He's long-suffering. The word that's used there is chesed in the Hebrew. He is long-suffering. He extends mercy to his people and they respond in idolatry. They respond in rebellion. The mercy of God should lead us to repentance. And I would plead with you this morning that we confess our need for God, that we confess our longing and our lusting for things that are temporary instead of for things that are eternal. Because it is Christ alone who will sustain us until we see him again. We take, if you have your communion there this morning, these are reminders, these are symbols of a sustenance of Christ. We see here that his body was broken for us. Now, is this, is this lunch? This isn't even a good snack. When kids are in here like, can I have some communion? Can I have some grape juice? I'm like, no, for two reasons. One, you're not a follower of Christ. But for two, you're going to be really lacking, and then you're going to want like eight of them, okay? Uh, this is not, a, this is not a, a physical sustenance for us, but it is a reminder of a spiritual sustenance that right now in this in-between time, one day we are going to see Jesus Christ in his flesh again. And today we can be reminded that he is sustaining us. He will sustain us. He is faithful. When we are weak, he is strong. And so I'd ask you, brothers and sisters, to take that bit of wafer there. And as you eat it, be reminded of the sustenance that we have in Christ. And push on, persevere to the end, even in your weakness. Jesus told his disciples, he said, take and eat all of it. Under the next layer there is, is grape juice. And it's, it's nothing special. We bought it on Amazon. 
It's not going to save you or cure you. After you drink this, it's not going to make you any closer to Jesus just because of this. But the people of Israel were looking for a special sign. They had a method of communicating with God in the ephod. But what did they want? They wanted something a little more special. But I would encourage you that communion is what the church has celebrated for centuries as being the closest to Christ when we celebrate his death and his resurrection with a piece of bread and juice or wine. And so as we drink this, be reminded, not physically that this is so delicious, but be reminded that his blood covers you and we can be sustained because of his righteousness, because in the midst of our sin, he offers life to us. So he told his disciples, he said, take and drink all of it. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. I would encourage you, if you have never fallen upon the mercy of God before in your life, if you have never repented of your sin and confessed him as Lord and Savior of your life, that is the means of salvation. I would compel you through the power of the Spirit to do that this morning for the very first time. You can come down here after the service and talk to me. I'll be over here singing, build my life in just a minute. If you want to come interrupt me on that, that's fine. I'll, I'll talk to you about any of those things. If you are a believer, I would encourage you to confess him as Lord again today. Fall harder upon his mercy. Be reminded that it is in our weakness that we come to be more like Christ, not in our strength. Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God. We thank you that we don't have to look elsewhere for what satisfies, but that we can look to a good king who has satisfied the penalty of sin who has satisfied the wrath of the Father, who was, rose, who was risen on the third day by the power of the Spirit, who is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, and who will one day return in all power, not in weakness, not in meekness, but with a sword coming out of his mouth. We thank you that we worship a powerful king, We pray this morning that we would be known as those who are not dependent on our own gifts or skills. But I pray that we would be relying on and resting in your power, in your strength. May that be where our, our identity rests. May that be obvious in our homes, with our children, in our marriages, and to a lost and to a dying world. We pray that you would use us even to the point of our own deaths, to make your glory and your renown known. It's in Christ's name we pray.